Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to episode 14 of the Innovation Capital Podcast presented by PatSnap. In today's episode, Ray Chohan sits down with Scott Asmus. Uh, This episode is about managing IP, a perspective from the aerospace industry. Now, a little bit about Scott. Scott received his JD and Master's of Intellectual Property from Franklin Pierce Law Center. He's a registered patent attorney drafting and prosecuting patent applications in electrical software, telecommunications, optics, semiconductor, and electromechanical arts. He received a BSEE in 1985 with work experience that includes Grunman Aerospace, Raytheon, and analog devices. A former partner at Maine and Asmus, Nashua NH, and IP manager at GE Global Research Center in Niskayuna, New York. Currently, Scott is the Deputy Chief Counsel of Intellectual Property at BAE Systems. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into the episode. Scott, welcome to Innovation Capital. Would love to kick off with your backstory. I can see you started off as an engineer before you ended up in the wonderful world of IP. So, Scott, it will be great just to get a, a context of your journey so far. Sure, Ray. So, uh, and good morning. So, yes, it's a. I took a long and, and twisted path to become a patent counsel. Um, I, I do believe you're the sum of your life experiences, and so it's good to experience a lot. And I tend to use every bit of that knowledge and experience in my day-to-day operations. Uh, so, I actually, uh, I went to. I wanted to be a pirate when I grew up. I actually went to a maritime school, and I got a third mate's license to ship, but there were no jobs. Uh, so I took path number two, uh, electrical engineering, and I wound up working uh, first at Grumman Aerospace on the F-14D radar system. That was the Tomcat, great plane. Um, so as I started my career there, I then went to Raytheon uh, Technologies now and started working there. I worked on the Hawk system, which is the battery system that was involved with the SCUDs during the first Gulf War. Um, I also worked on the AMRAM uh, radar subsystem assemblies. Uh, from there, I went to analog devices uh, and worked there for a year on the 8608 RF log amp uh, device, mixer log amp. It was a first opportunity to be in the commercial world and actually work with concurrent engineering. So it was very interesting working on design, manufacture, testing at the same time. Great experience there. I got to wear a bunny suit, which is what you do in a clean room. Um, so I got a lot of great experience there. And then for some strange, odd reason, I decided to go to law school. So I went up to Franklin Pierce Law Center up in uh, New Hampshire and wound up uh, getting a JD and an LLM, um, which is like a master's of IP um, component, and started on my own practice um, in private practice, Maine and Asmus up in uh, New Hampshire. I uh, had a great run for a number of years in the private practice area um, and doing what you know comes about with a lot of independent ventures. We had some core corporate clients, but the real fun is working with the independent ventures. They're a lot of fun. They're very passionate about uh, their creations and their inventions and, and trying to help them guide them along the process to become profitable because many of them are coming from a, a lower money profile than our larger corporate base. So it was interesting working with them. Um, so after about, I'd say about 10 years, so I had about 10 years in engineering. I was in uh, private practice for about 10 years. I, I got the itch to try something new um, and I decided to go in-house. Uh, so I went from there over to GE Global Research um, which is in uh, New York, upstate New York. Um, I had a great experience working there. It's uh, it had at that point in time it had the highest percentage of um, PhDs in the United States. Uh, it was an amazing place. It was I think Willy Wonka, uh, but instead of developing candy, they're developing technology. Um, it was a great opportunity to work with um, once again crazy inventors uh, coming up with all sorts of things. It was interesting conversations that you go to the lunchroom and you see people writing on napkins and moving around salt and pepper shakers and trying to design something. It was a great, great experience working there. Um, and I was there for about 10 years, pretty much. So you can probably see my modest here is, is a 10-year cycles. Um, 
I saw an opportunity to try something new and I decided to try an opportunity here as a chief IP counsel here at BA Systems. And I started here about six years ago. Um, so it's been a, it's a long, as I said, a long and tortuous path of things, but I, that's where I am right now. That's fascinating because we see a small contingent of IP leaders come from an engineering background. And, and did you spot something as an engineer on the ground level which compelled you to dig into IP and and really spend your focus there? Because was it was it a particular pattern you spotted? What was the kind of the igniting flame to get you curious about IP from from an engineering standpoint? Yeah, so I was I was an engineer at Raytheon. I was sitting there, you know, on a bench. Uh, working on the rigs and, and test systems, was testing operations and sit there and you, and you know it was one of those I I saw down the stream there was a guy next to me that had been there 40 years and he was doing the same thing, um, and I thought yeah, I don't know this is not something for me, um, so I started looking at other opportunities um, and someone had mentioned that they had just gotten a patent and I'm like well, what is that, um, and I started researching a little bit so it, it it took a while for me to figure out that's what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I talked to the in-house counsel at uh, Raytheon at the time. I drove down and actually spoke with him. He gave me the gracious opportunity to con- converse with him. And he said it was a great career. He said, you know, if you want, if you like engineering and playing with technology, this is it. You see different technology. You're on the leading edge. You're filing the patent applications before the public will ever see this technology. And that was intriguing to me. And, and, and you know, I basically thought if if this is something that I can derive value from and also create an impact, I think it was the path I wanted to take. So I went ahead and quit my job uh, and went ahead and went to law school. And 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 looking at things from a 30,000 foot overview, we always hear about the common headlines where IP as an asset class forms 80% of the value of the S&P 500. I think in 2021, Scott, it's now at 90% is all the intangible market cap. So patents, software, data, trade secrets, et cetera. But, but it's still interesting that we're still on this journey of organizations, be it the defense sector, be it automotive, be it semiconductor, on really enterprise-wide, really understanding the value of that asset class. What, what are some of the challenges you've observed yourself to really get IP in the boardroom and, and get patents really understood within the yeah. market facing teams, the marketing organization, because I still feel, Scott, we're still on that journey here at Patstat. We're still trying to beat the drum about educating the market. And, it, it, and it's, it's not easy. So I was curious, firstly, what do you think the challenges currently are? And where do you think it will be in three to five years, Scott? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right. If you look at any of the data uh, coming out from various sources related to what people put on their finance statements, how they're doing M&As. Um, it, they're all putting a huge value proposition on their intellectual property. And as you said, I believe 2020, 2021, some of the companies were posting over 90% of the value of the company was in the intangibles. That's the goodwill and the IP being the dominant components of that. Um, companies like Facebook, for example, I mean, what do they really make? Google, I mean, you know, they're, they're not producing really hardware devices we normally think in that context, and yet the valuations are through the roof. Um, whereas more companies like, you know, if you look at the listing of companies that are now lower, GE, ExxonMobil, companies with hardware infrastructure are much lower valued than these companies that have no products. So I think this is a shift that's came very quickly, and I don't think the market has adjusted it to yet. Either has the board of directors, um, which tend to be the more stoic conservative types that may not always see where the value proposition is. I mean, who would have thought Elon Musk would be where he is right now, or Jeff Bezos, uh, as an example of, of how they rose to such value and importance. Um, so it is a struggle to convince uh, members of a higher level of the leadership community um, as to how intellectual property is such a valuable component to everything they're doing. Um, it's one thing in, to basically state that, but another is to prove it. And so I, I try to find examples in the industry. I think the few years ago, Raytheon, which was a defense company, a, a competitor of ours, merged with UTC, United Technologies Corporation. And it was called a merger of equals. And everyone was scratching their heads because Raytheon was much smaller than UTC in every respect. Um, but what Raytheon did was they posted that their value of their intellectual property assets made them appear. And they posted a phenomenal value to that component. And therefore, it showed the value proposition to UTC to make them appear. 
Um, that's a great example of how you can start seeing where this is coming into play. And I try to find examples like that and try to show people that that is accurate. Those are real numbers. It's not like Bitcoin. Uh, these are real numbers and people are using them to their advantage. In terms of getting IP in the boardroom and, and getting really understood and, and getting muscle behind it in terms of internal political capital, where do you think we are on, on that side of things? Because I think it's, it's very much a people-based thing as well. So in terms of innings, are we in the first innings or do you think we've progressed? I think we're past the first inning, but we're not near, not near the home stretch yet, which is the seventh inning and beyond. Um, um, so it is one where I think we're starting to see penetration um, as people move into the boards and the higher levels that that have that can see the significance of the intellectual property assets. And as you mentioned, a lot of it is a cultural thing. Um, you know, it's it's you get a lot of people that you know. Oh well, we have we've never worked with IP before, and why would we start now? And why would we do things differently than we've always done before? The world's changed. Um, you know, no, it doesn't take a, a brilliant mind to see that things are very different now than they were two years ago, five years ago, uh, ten years ago. Um, so I think you know, I think it's really just a recognition that they're slowly catching up and coming up to speed on. Um, but I think there's a lot that can be done, and it's not just the, the high level. Um, I find that you know, cultural changes cover both tops and bottoms. And so I think it's important to understand that when you're talking about IP, you start creating a clear message of what is intellectual property, add a defense company as an example. What do you do with it? Trying to explain to people that, I mean, a lot of people, if you ask most people, what do you do with IP? They're like, you license it. Um, and they can't go any further than that because they're not recognizing the other components to where intellectual property plays an important role in a company's success or failure. Um, so I think that's one is you have to really start coming out and messaging it properly, making sure that, and it's going to vary from company, but the message is clear and succinct as to, you know, what is IP and why is it valuable and where are we using it? Um, I think the communication side of things and the marketing have not been great on intellectual property. And that's what I think a lot of companies need to start some focus on. It's interesting you mentioned that obvious licensing use case and, and that drum is always beaten within all industries at companies of all sizes a low-hanging piece of fruit in terms of leveraging your intangible assets. But you briefly mentioned it. There are other low-hanging fruit out there which isn't discussed, isn't talked about. So, so what, what does that look like? So licensing is the obvious one which everyone runs towards because it's quite obvious to understand. But what other dimensions, Scott, do you think are, are compelling and, and organizations are not executing on and leaving those chips on the table? I think the dominant one for most companies that are practicing is risk mitigation. Um, you know, we have non-practicing entities, you can call them patent trolls, but non-practicing entities out there and just general um, litigation issues out there. In the U.S., uh, litigation, patent litigation especially, is extremely expensive. Um, we have had just recently, this last six months, there was a $2 billion verdict in the semiconductor industry. Um, those are big numbers, um, and those are off the bottom line. Um, so I think that's caught a lot of people's attention. Um, so, you know, you look at... and some people call it mutually assured destruction, but you know, with peers at least, you want to have a robust patent portfolio. You also want to have a robust patent portfolio to keep others from practicing in your space. So this is why you want to patent and have the first rights in your particular technology. Make sure your claims cover what you're doing because it's important to be able to freedom to operate. You want to make sure that you can sell your product and make that money. Um, there's an awful lot of litigation going on in the U.S. I think um, the rest of the world doesn't have that anywhere near the volume that we're getting. And I think some recent statistics show that um, in the patent space or these technology areas, 90% of the patent litigation is from non-practicing entities. Um, they're venture-backed or private equity-backed, buying up pools of patents and then asserting them against companies. It's a big factor here. And that's why I think a lot of companies are looking very seriously at figuring out how to, how to control that issue. Um, and one of those is to basically patent your stuff um, and get the rights to it as much as you can and keep other people out of it. Um, and I think that's going to be a continuing evolution of what people do to basically counter the non-practicing entity dilemma we're having here in the U.S. Scott, on the NPE front in the U.S. market, are we seeing a resurgence? Because I, 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 I thought, say, 2017 onwards, it was declining and, and companies were getting their arms around the risk and risk mitigation side of their IP assets. So it wasn't as frothy as it used to be back in 2012, 2013, 2014 for the MPEs. Have things picked up where there's more action now and, and price action around 
litigation, I think, is kind of looking kind of back to 2012, 2013. It has. Um, your, your data is, is outdated. Um, it's, it's frothy again. Um, so, okay. yes, so we've seen an upsurge, an uptick in activity um, and also sophistication. So right immediately after the, the, we call it the Alice decision here in the United States, but a decision that you needed something more around certain types of patents, a lot of the, the patent trolls assets were fairly weak and they were quickly kicked out using various mechanisms into parties reviews in the patent office or in litigation that were being crushed. Um, and you're right, it ticked down, it markedly dropped in a certain time frame. But the patents sophistication got better. Um, you have now the patents that are passing the bar in terms of going over post-Alice considerations and the sophistication using tools and analytics, as well as being funded now by private equity, which is a new dilemma or wrinkle here is that it's no longer just some, you know, an old retired patent attorney that has a few patents in his coffers and he's throwing them over the fence. Um, these are well-funded, sophisticated enterprises that are buying up bulk patents screening those patents using analytics and tools and asserting them. And we've seen in the last year and a half to two years, a very significant increase. And there's also a historical trend there to watch. Um, during the last great downturn we've had in the 2008-ish timeframe, right after things uh, came, started improving, there was a massive escalation in the amount of litigation. And we're thinking that's going to be similar to this downturn we had as companies pair their their losses because now they've gone through that period of time, they're pruning. So large companies are pruning big volume of assets um, and selling them off. And who's the most likely purchaser? The private equity enterprises. Um, so I think Nokia just announced uh, like 10 or 20,000 patents they were selling off in the 5G space and the communications area. We're seeing that as a factor that's going to probably accelerate the amount of patent non-practicing entity litigation that'll occur. And everyone's trying to figure out and prepare for that. Interesting. So you now have got this wave because PE have been super active, right, in the last seven, eight years. So they've got all these assets on their balance sheet and now they're being proactive and partnering with MPEs and, and thinking how they can monetize and, and optimize that asset. So, um, wow. And we never thought about it from that perspective. So it, it looks like it's going to be a busy next two, three years because that, that parking lot of M&A activity is big. And I'm guessing there's so so much IP on those balance sheets across so many different industries where you've got these PE houses rubbing their hands together thinking, okay, how can we generate some yield? Yeah. And it's it's more difficult now too, because a lot of the the we're talking about litigation here is in the software space. Um, you know, whether it be quantum or 5G or something of that nature, it's not a physical thing where you can go to a jury and say widget A and widget B and see the differences. Software is a lot harder to discern. It's a lot harder to do clearance and freedom of operate opinions because the claims can be somewhat ambiguous. Um, so I think it is going to be an uptick. And, and you know, uh, Europe has been spared of this to some extent in the loser pays model that we have there uh, or you guys have there. So I think you've uh, you've managed to circumvent some of this. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see an increase there as well. Once again, these are sophisticated users with better tools than they were in the past. I'm assuming they're going to be able to predict which ones are going to be successful in the marketplace in a litigation context. And I think you will see litigation start happening on that side of the pond. Hmm. So it's interesting. A couple of moments ago, you were using Amazon and Facebook as an interesting example where yep, the actual users are actually the product and the values accrued through data and network effects, hence their insane market cap, right? And, and so much bullishness around their growth compared to classic, uh, more analog-based businesses. And then we're now seeing another big can of worms, which I'd love to unpack with you, and you briefly touched upon it. How do you manage IP in the world of software? Because software is literally eating everything, even like really yeah. traditional industries. Like I was on a conversation literally the other day with a really traditional chocolate manufacturer, and their new chief exec is talking about data and machine learning and I was just trying to get my head around okay you, you're going to be deploying that technology within a traditional chocolate manufacturer but he actually had a clear vision on how he was going to go about doing that so we are seeing software literally eat every market even non-obvious markets so is this changing your job a lot in terms of your day-to-day -day, in terms of the knowledge base you and your team have to build out and and how 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 do you see the future role of it 
a chief IP counsel in a world of where software is literally eating everything? What are some of the, the key things you have to get your arms around and, and upskill your team around? And it's not just my team. It's also my outside counsel. Um, so you're right. It, it is one where the skill sets need to be vastly improved in some areas and making sure you understand filing a software application is not like filing a, a, a golf ball application. Um, some are, you know, the golf ball application is much more physical and understandable. The software has various tangents to it. And the Alice decision I mentioned earlier, the Supreme Court decision on that, um, really focused on software in general. They said something more, which is not the base, best clarity that they provided. Uh, but what it means is that when you're filing a software application, you need to be much more clearer and clarify what you mean by the modules that you're putting in there. If it's something that's doing some functionality uh, and you're describing it in terms of blocks, you need much more definition. Um, I'm going back to you know years ago when the software first became patentable. Um, I used to include pseudocode or actual source code in the application to the extent I could to kind of show the functionality and very clearly define it. I see that coming back into vogue to some extent in terms of being able to clearly show and delineate what the software is doing and being very specific as to the application space. You can't just claim um, you know, some software that does some data processing. You need to define what is the data being processed, what is it doing, and what is the outcome of that process. Um, it's a very different field than when it was years ago when software was first considered patentable and those patents are now gone. Um, so the sophistication is there. The applications for software um, are much longer, they're much thicker, they're more pricey. Um, so working with your outside counsel to basically gauge that and make sure that you're providing adequate resources to that. Um, and also, you know, we tend to very closely scrutinize the claims on the patent applications because that's the meets and bounds of protection. And we can't shoot for pie in the sky type of claims in software. We have to be very narrow and specific and then the business case comes up and says, well, those are too narrow. I prefer to keep as a trade secret. So we're seeing a great balance now between trade secret protection and patent side in software. And in some cases, the claims will be narrow enough that it's just not worth it. Um, so one of, the, one of the tricks and tools that we do in software, in the U.S., we have the option of filing what's called a non-publication request at the time of filing. So if we're filing on a software case, and it's one of which we are not interested in international protection, which you know, in some cases that may be, but if we are only really interested in US patent protection, we file with a non-publication request. And what that does is we proceed with our patent application, but it is not published at 18 months, like most patents. You go up to the point of allowance and issuance, and then you decide whether or not to pay the issue fee. And you look at the scope of the claims, make an assessment of, are those claims too narrow that they're not gonna be worth getting granted? We'll keep it as a trade secret. So we've actually been using that on a lot of our software cases um, where we only want U.S. protection and we wait until the issue point and we look at the claim set and we make a determination of whether to keep it as a trade secret if we can, or we go ahead and patent it with whatever narrow claim set might be there. So, so on the software side, Scott, what's the directional lay of the land versus trade secret and actually filing and publishing a patent? What, what does it look like and where do you see the future? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I think, you know, to some extent, the patent applications are getting much more detailed than they used to be. Um, many times, you know, you, you could, years ago, you could kind of gloss over certain details in a software patent application and get it through. We're having to provide much greater depth and detail into how it's being done. Um, and I think that's a big change in the last few years. We're seeing that the patents that are getting granted in the software space do have a lot of detail, um, whereas... In the trade secret spectrum, if your software is going to be firmware and it's not subject to reverse engineering, you might be able to leverage that and keep it as a trade secret. The other is obsolescence. Um, we look at software in terms of how long do you really think that algorithm is going to be in the marketplace and where is it going to be supplanted? Um, you know, I think the dynamicism we're seeing in the industry is that things are not lasting 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, we're seeing entire industries disappear in 5, 10, 15 years. So I think, you know, we're, we, are, we are spending a little more time thinking about that trade secret balance because patents are expensive and you're disclosing to the world what you're doing. Whereas on the trade secret spectrum, you might be able to keep it a secret for a few years. Is that may be all you're going to get out of it before you basically switch over and the algorithm now changes to something else. Um, so there is a much more active discussion of trade secrets. Um, and sometimes we go round and round circles uh, between the business leaders and the engineers and myself trying to figure out the best best decision for each individual invention. 
And in terms of, so this is fascinating. So this software space, we are watching really closely from an analytics standpoint, as you can appreciate, Scott. So do you see, we're seeing volumes really uptick in terms of number of patents being filed around software or ML, AI capability. Are you seeing similar things in the US marketplace where volumes and numbers are really high with, with patents around software? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, as you said, software software ate the market, um, you know, and, and it is one in which we're seeing, especially being the shift in technologies, um, even in the defense space, uh, we're seeing the same convergence of technologies in the commercial space that we're seeing autonomy, as an example, AI, um, you know, 5G. A lot of this is purely software um, driven um, and enormous numbers. I think the last data I showed something like 70 to 80 percent of the patents granted in 2020 were software related. Um, you know, so it's nobody. The, the number of patents being filed on other hardware items is much, much smaller and software has crept in. Um, and one of the things you mentioned earlier, which I think is an interesting point, is it's not just the software, it's the data. Um, and that's being, you know, data is protected sometimes differently. Um, in many cases, it can't, sometimes can't protect it. Um, so it's very important that contractual agreements are protecting the data um, importantly then. And, you know, I think um, Bill Rue was the, the head of GE Digital when they first launched it. And, and basically his comment was, he who owns the data owns the world. And when he said that back in the 2013 timeframe, a lot of people just laughed, but um, it turns out that, you know, the data is remarkably important. Um, the sensors that are collecting that data, um, if it's an airplane or if it's a car, who's collecting the data, who owns the data? Um, and what are they doing with that data? Um, you know, there is now, as we know, there's millions of lines of code in every car um, and multiple sensors gauging everything. Who's collecting that data? What are they doing with the data? Do they know how fast you're traveling? Do they know where you went? Um, you know, they're, they're monitoring a lot of activities I don't think people understand. Um, and that's just cars, <laughs> you know, every appliance in your house, uh, your phone, your computer, all that data that's being collected and gathered about you fitting profiles and advertising um, is, is interesting to see where this is gonna lend in the future as more and more of this heads out and autonomy and AI get more involved with what's going on in, in our day-in-day -day operations, whether it be a chocolate manufacturer uh, or you know a, a defense company. So obviously we're seeing the exact same thing, Scott, this insane amount of convergence and something which we call the acceleration of the acceleration. So all industries overlapping. So let's look at Hyperloop as one example, which is an amazing project, which Virgin are working on. Um, the boring company, Elon Musk's company is working on one. And I think there's 24 active Hyperloop projects right now in the world, which I can't wait till it's there because it will definitely change my life in terms of my com commute from, from greater London to the city. Um, and if you look at that technology, it's only possible through acceleration across a whole variety of converging sectors. So material science, AI, drilling technology, all of those kind of different ingredients overlapping potentially together to create the Hyperloop, which is making things a lot more complicated uh, than ever. But at the core of that is software. And as you touched upon the 2020 numbers, 70% of patents filed within the US market are purely based around software. So does do you think that will dramatically change your workflow then from an analysis standpoint, the types of training your team have to do from an IP standpoint and, and also the stakeholders around you? Does it does it does it change your your workflow or the type of analysis you would require to effectively operate in a software driven world? Yeah, I do think it, it makes it more complex. Um, you know, if you get an office action for a you know a simple mechanical device, you can almost estimate it's going to be two to five hours for you to complete it because it's usually fairly simple. We're seeing these software office action rejections coming in at 35, 45, 50 pages long, um, and they're brutal. <laughs> so you talk about scalability, it's one, of, it's one thing to have a few of those. Um, when they become the more dominant um, attribute of your portfolio, your prosecution costs and the time spent on prosecution, as an example, goes through the roof. Um, and these things are just meaty applications um, of, of high complexity. Um, and that's just on the on one component of this whole trail of, of IP. Um, you know, you talk about your inventor time. 
the inventor's time to actually draft and help out on a software application is immensely larger. Who pays the overhead um, for the inventor that actually has to spend twice as much time on a software application? Um, as we continue to see the growth in software and the various developments around that, we are slowly seeing this creep into our, our evolving uh, paradigm of how we're going to protect this in a meaningful way and yet not bankrupt the company by having inventors spend all their time uh, working with patent attorneys. So yeah, it is, it is an area that I think most companies are trying to address in a piecemeal fashion. I think there may be some higher level things we can all start looking at and doing things, um, you know, better templates and other things that might help out in our regard. But at the end of the day, the scalability of this is tough as we get more and more of these very difficult technologies that we have to patent and prosecute. Because I think the the average, it's, it's fascinating you talk about this huge delta in the complexity and the number of office actions around a software patent. Because I think traditionally it's around about, the, the median is around about $6,000 per typical patent. That, that's the numbers that we see online. Typical, the average cost is $56,000 for a US patent. And if in a pie chart format, around about $6,000 is the back and forth around office actions. So is that delta considerably bigger for, for the software side? If so, does the cost structure dramatically change from the average cost being around about $56,000 to a software patent? Well, I don't have the number. Maybe you do, but is it a big delta in terms of actual individual costs per patent? Yes, it is a big delta. Um, and, and I can tell you, your numbers are a little bit slight on, on software cases. I'd say you probably double those. Uh, that would be my guesstimate. Um, and, and you're talking high, you're talking about larger companies with high volume where the patent firms are giving them disc, deep discounts. If you're a smaller software enterprise, you're talking software patent applications, probably starting around 10K going to 20. Um, if you're a you know, smaller, medium-sized company, that's probably closer to the norm. I file a lot of cases and I work hard to you know, beat down my outside counsel uh, to get the lowest price I can. Um, but at the end of the day, their pri- they have to stay in business. And if they're spending you know, 50, 60 hours on a case, $6,500 is not going to cut it. Um, so I think you know, we are seeing that, that increase. And we, we have our outside counsel on fixed fees, but we provide them the ability to send engagement letters for each case. Um, so, you know, we, we give them a difficult case, they're not going to quote it at 6,000. Um, and we're seeing that uptick quite across the board. Um, and, you know, once again, my budget every year, I have to predict what my budget is the, at the beginning of the year uh, and just hope and pray that I get it right by the end of the year. Um, so I think, and we've seen a marked increase in the last few years uh, of our budget in general um, due to annuities and other things. So I keep asking for more money. And I think that's going to be a continuing trend. Yeah, so are you seeing more support as well from the C-level of them giving more uh, balance sheet backing to the IP department, knowing that this is front of house now, it isn't a back office function, which is kind of like, oh, yeah, we've got to have it, but it shouldn't be as proactive as, as, as it could be. Are you seeing a culture shift in terms of support from the board and C-level on investing in the IP department from a budget and human, human capital and, and culture standpoint? Yeah, fortunately, I think we do. Uh, and I think the message is out there. I mean, I think we used to be deemed as a necessary evil uh, to some extent. Uh, I think that's shifted. I think now they're seeing the value proposition and, and every company is touting their IP portfolio. And so you can't flip on the news without hearing about either patent litigation, IP issues, copyright issues. Um, and the numbers are staggering. I mean, the, the Oracle v. Google case or the Oracle v. Um, Google, yeah, the, the uh, copyright case that recently got handed down, that was a $10 billion um, lawsuit. Um, and fortunately, the Supreme Court ruled that um, the APIs were, were not something they could protect. But for the most part, you know, these numbers are immense. Um, and that's just damages, um, let alone what it does to your business operations to have to stop and, and re-gear and retool. Um, so, yeah, the IP is, is a very powerful tool if used properly. Um, and I think the companies recognize that based on mostly from what they read from other companies suffering the harm that can come about from that. That's, That's great to hear, yeah. Paul, from, from what you're observing, specifically in the defense sector. So has that enabled certain types of programs, Scott, that you lead within your organization to raise awareness around IP and get different departments involved? Have you guys ran any specific initiatives at BAE or, or just 
initiatives you've, you've observed in your vertical or industry, which are really moving the needle around taking IP to the boardroom and, and getting different teams involved around IP? Yeah, I think a lot of times you have to kind of look, each program is very different, um, you know, whether it's a business area and, you know, whether I work to GE or here, um, you know, you're running a, a particular program and that particular program has certain attributes and parameters around it that you have to look at. And each one is going to be, you know, everyone wants an IP strategy. That's the big buzzword now. You know, I want an innovation and an IP strategy. Um, it boils down to what is your business plan? What do you want to do? What is the end goal? What is the short term goal? What is the end term goal? Um, what does your competitors look like? What do they look like? What are they doing? Um, how are you in this space? Are you a leader? Are you a trailer? Um, you know, it really is a lot more involved. Everyone thinks an IP strategy is, is an easy thing to formulate, but it actually is very complex. With certain program areas, we're starting to use analytic tools like PatSnap and other things to kind of gauge where we are. Um, and nothing drives innovation more than showing that you're lagging your competitors. Um, so a lot of times I will deliberately pull up a few of the patents from our competitors and wave them in their face saying, okay, well, you guys, you know, didn't file many patents, but look who did. Um, and that tends to accelerate the, you know, them to kind of think more clearly about what is it that they're doing and what innovation and improvements have they done um, on a regular basis? Because, you know, having inventors to stop inventing um, and to sit there and do the paperwork um, is they don't like that part of the job. Uh, most of them prefer to be in the lab tinkering. Um, so you have to really sometimes capture them um, and get their attention span for a little bit of time and explain why it's important that they actually stop and document their innovations. And that's always a challenge at every company. I think some companies are much, much better at it. Um, we continually struggle with that a little bit here at VA Systems uh, because it is one where their fore focus is developing the best technology for the, for the DOD. And everything else is an afterthought. And so, you know, we have to do deliberate sessions sometimes. We call it IP capture, but they're called ideation sessions, innovation sessions, whatever you want to call it. It's a time where you put pens down, you sit in a room with people and you say, okay, what have you been working on? Um, what have you developed? Um, and you start delineating some of the improvements they've made and try to explain to them that, okay, no one's ever done that before. Don't they think we want to capture that? Um, so I think that's one of the things we've been doing here is uh, having deliberate sessions, capture sessions on certain technology and programs that kind of help the team and facilitate the process of capturing those inventions and documenting those and proceeding with the ones that go through the process uh, to patenting. And, and, and kind of switching lanes and just looking at the, the aerospace and defense marketplace, and that's a, an industry which excites us here at PatSnap. We'll have many listeners who are just fascinated about some of the technological developments within aerospace and defense, because a lot of it does bleed into the consumer markets. And when it does, boy, does it make an impact because it's typically very deep tech. Are, are, there, are there seismic changes happening within your industry? And if so, be it from a data or software standpoint or, or now opening up new markets and being less focused on the DOD and looking at more consumer applications, what are some of the big mega trends and, and seismic shifts happening within your industry at a macro level? And how does IP fit into that? Is it is there, because we're seeing, especially, well, I mean, COVID accelerated it, but we're seeing off the charts change, Scott, across all markets. Some literally make me fall out of my chair, what they're doing now and what they're trying to focus on. So I was just curious, what, what are some of the big headlines within your marketplace? Yeah, I think the big one that I'm seeing as a, as a trend, and, and um, it's probably a good thing, is the collaboration. Um, there used to be a theory that, you know, it's, it's, if it's not invented here, we're not interested. I think what we're seeing now is most companies are recognizing that you can't invent everything you need um, in your own space. You need to be getting the best technology, the best people, um, and you're not going to be able to hire those people. Um, so I think that we're seeing a, a rapid increase in the number of players and the collaboration efforts going on. A lot of big companies are, are you know, frenemies. Uh, basically, they're, they're joining forces to go for the common good. You mentioned the boring going on. Yeah, you need to have people that are not uh, software people. You need to have minerals people. You need to have people that are material scientists. Um, you need to have all that skill set. Um, so a lot of it is turning into being assembling the correct parties and partners. And the partners are very important. And you will either succeed or fail based on your selection of partners. Um, I think that's a big effort going on across the board, even in the DOD space, um, where there's a big pressure that, you know, obviously the government spends a lot of money on DOD but it pales in comparison with the amount of money that private enterprise is spending on R&D. Um, so, you know, is the DOD producing the quote unquote best leading edge technology? 
In certain areas, probably not. Um, it's being done in the commercial space. And what the government is trying to do and our side is basically take that leading edge technology, bring it into the defense spectrum, which it needs to be hardened. It needs to be and satisfy all the criteria to be a, a military product or a military service. Um, you know, the general um, commercial COTS product won't pass muster. Um, it needs to be hardened. So we're seeing a trend of some of the bleeding edge or leading edge technology not coming from defense contractors, but coming from third parties. Um, and I think it's a welcome change. We're starting to see new players step into the space. Um, if you look at um, um, ENVG, which is night vision goggles, HoloLens from Microsoft is actually the key player there um, because they had some really great technology that the military loved. And so they put and assembled the team with Microsoft and other players to take the commercial product and make it more military. If you look at, uh, I remember there was a big thing about drones a while back, the military was trying to see how they could formulate and patternize and make a coordinated effort among swarms of drones. And then we saw, of course, the Olympics and other things where, you know, you have thousands of drones in the air and they're forming signals and spaces. One recent one, in, I think it was Japan, they formed a QR code and people could take a picture of it and, and download something. That technology is there. Um, it's just a matter of finding it and leveraging it to the place where we need it, at least in the military. Um, so I'd say I, I'd look at collaboration efforts as one of the big changing things that we're seeing. And there's a big push by the government on that regard because of all the funding that's being done on the private side. And frankly, nobody can afford that level of funding on the, on the uh, military side, defense contractor side. So we have to leverage where the money's being spent, find the best partners and move forward with the best technologies. It's interesting you mentioned that you are seeing a couple of classic Silicon Valley style startups who are actually catering to the defense market. There's one name which slips my mind, but I know that they're doing some really big headway and getting some really interesting contracts. So we are observing, um, the the name slips my mind, but I'm sure. It's probably probably Palantir. That's more on the data side, but I think there's also a hardware player. I think there's a, a venture capitalist called Lux Capital who yep. have moved money into that startup. Yes. Um, God, the name completely slips my mind, but I'll send it to you. And they're, they're directly selling to the DOD, which is really rare in startup land. So we, we, we are also observing that. So it, and it's, it's, it's interesting how you mention the not invented here mentality. I mean, that's one of our missions here at PatSnap to overcome that psychology it's really difficult scott it's like a like it's been like a 10-year effort for us but it excites me to hear that we are now seeing some changes especially in industries like aerospace and defense have you got some good examples which you can share where you've there's certain use cases or 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 stories which led to purely external innovation and how that played out have you got any favorite examples of within your organization or, or other other companies which it, some of what some of this is is proprietary, so I'm trying to think my my memory banks here on ones that are uh, more easily shared. Um, you know, we have done uh, it is one we recently did. Um, you know, and this was something out of the operation space where we collaborated with another party. Um, we were finding that a lot of our uh, components that were coming in waffle packs uh, were we call it component out of pocket. Uh, basically, these are semiconductor die. And some, as you can tell from the semiconductor industry right now, every die is really important uh, because of the supply, the political supply uh, issues we're having. So what we're finding in the waffle packs was the parts were bouncing around. They were causing failures or potential failures. They were parts you know, need to be maintained specifically in their pocket during the entire transit and handling process. Um, so we identified a problem and our folks were working on a solution to that and they came up with a better clip and lib mechanism by which to hold the parts firmly in place and make sure that the uniform pressure, et cetera. Um, but we don't manufacture these parts. Uh, so we reached out and we found a, a company that basically uh, manufactures the clips and lids, and we worked with them on designing and developing a market um, and a product that basically they're going to sell and, and manufacture. Uh, we're going to purchase it. Uh, but it was a nice collaboration in that, you know, we saw where we needed a fix, but we didn't have the capabilities to do that in-house. We were not going to turn into a manufacturer of these things. So we had to partner with someone that was. Um, and that was the story was re- recently released. Um, you know, it's it's called the Super Lid, Super Clip and Lid. Um, and Delphon is the company that we're working with on that. Um, so that's public. So I can share that. 
what's been the force multiplier to drive that change, Scott? Because I know for so many years that not not invented here mentality, that, that mindset was really strong and really difficult to get around. What are some of the kind of macros which have driven people to actually execute and, and kind of change their habits in, in your professional opinion? I, I think it's a combination of things. Number one, that's a recognition that we have limited resources. Um, you know, we basically, uh, you know, you want to change the world, but, you know, how do you start doing that? So, you know, if you go into a lot of places are looking at um, automation right now across the board, every company is trying to figure out how to better and get greater efficiencies, make things better yields, better efficiencies, et cetera. Um, that's, you know, when you talk about automation of a, of a factory floor that's been doing the same thing the same way for many years, uh, you're going to have a lot of resistance to that. So you really need to say, okay, what can I get done? What are the battles I can win? Um, and so we have a lot of people that are younger folks, especially looking at things with a new light. Um, I always like the, the you, know, you know, getting some diversity of opinions. Um, and so getting younger folks into the, the manufacturing lines, they look at things very differently, especially because they haven't been brought up doing the same thing the same way at the same time. Uh, so they, they are bringing new ideas and, and thinking into the process. Um, and I think there's a recognition that if it's going to save money and make a better product, um, it doesn't matter how it gets there, but somehow you have to figure out how to get to the end game. Um, and I think a lot of folks are really revisiting uh, the mentality of, of we have to design and every, develop everything here. I think there's just been a general trend towards reaching out and finding better partners because we just don't have the funding and the resources to do it any other way. If we want something done, you need to find the right party to work with and help both collaboratively bring, bring the production or the, whatever it is you're doing to a final state in a fairly quick time frame. And the only way to do that is working with third parties. Thank you for sharing that example, Scott. So switching lanes completely and, and kind of coming full circle. So we, earlier we were talking about, obviously now, kind of the big headlines, S&P 500, 90% of it is intangible assets in terms of market cap. But if you actually look at liquidity in the markets, the number of patents which are actually transacted and traded, it's around about $180 billion a year. So it's tiny. It's a fraction of a trillion dollar market. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen an IP watchdog or some of the news portals that you follow, but there's been a really interesting organization called IPWE. They've partnered with IBM to build out an NFT platform. So I'm sure you've seen this a whole bunch of times during your decades within this space the holy grail of an, an IP marketplace, an Amazon, an eBay, where you can seamlessly transact, reduce cost, friction, and enable price discovery and transparency, which is a holy grail, which potentially might be possible one day. Is that something you're looking at on this kind of potential boom? Uh, it's potential at the moment, a lot of kind of headlines of the patent system fundamentally being disrupted at first principles level where it's tokenized and it's a lot more liquid and transparent. Do you, what's your thoughts around that blue sky development? And is it something that you're observing from a distance? Observing from a distance. Uh, you know, I have my, my own thoughts on it. As you said, you know, when, you, when you've been around as long as I have and I've earned these gray hairs, um, you've seen a lot of things come and go over time. And, and this is the latest shiny thing is the, the NFTs and, and trying to commoditize the patent world. Um, I, once again, it's a tough one. You know, I, I'm, I'm old. I'll admit it. Uh, you know, I look at some of this with a lot of speculation in terms of, okay, how's that working? It's a little bit of, a little bit of skepticism as to whether they're actually going to make it work, um, the implementation of it. Will people actually jump on board with it? Um, you see these strange stories of someone selling a YouTube video for $750,000 to someone as an NFT. I mean, I don't know who's buying it. Um, I, I think it's crazy. Uh, but once again, and you know, I think it is one that's worth watching from a distance. Um, you know, I just want to see how it plays out a little bit more because it is one, you know, you look at the copyright space and copyrightable works as well. There's another area. I think that is probably more right than the patent space. Um, so there's a lot of um, legislation in the U.S. to come up with small claims courts of sorts in the, in the copyright world and try to resolve all these issues because it's, it's a little more, I think it's probably an easier one to tackle in the copyright realm than it would be on the patent side because the valuations are substantially different. Um, you know, that's someone which I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as well because that's looking also at trying to figure out a better marketplace for people to buy and sell copyrightable works. 
um, as opposed to the intangible assets associated with a patent. Um, so yeah, I, I've been reading about it. I've been keeping tabs on it, uh, but I, I haven't yet uh, bought my, um, my, my T-shirt with the name on it. You think it will happen, Scott, this time around? I know IPA, I think it's IPXI from Ocean Tomo have come and gone, and then there's one or two a couple of years ago. I've always watched them from a distance as well and just see how they unfold. But do you think kind of post-pandemic and now this acceleration environment we're in, we are going to see kind of B2B marketplaces play out like they've played out in the consumer world? Do you think the timing's there? Yeah, I, I view this in some respects as you remember the domain name space, you know, had domain name squatters and all that. And I'm not yep. sure if it still goes on to some extent, but, you know, somebody bought business.com for like a million dollars and everyone laughed at them until they sold it for a lot more than that. Um, you know, it is one of those marketplaces where it can come up, um, but that marketplace is sort of kind of watered down a bit. It hasn't hit the, the you know, it hasn't gone back up to where it was probably because they opened up so many more domain names. The problem I see with the patent area in particular becoming more of a commodity is valuations are exceedingly difficult. Um, you know, when you start saying how much is that patent worth? Well, worth to who? Um, you know, obviously from the seller's perspective, it's worth a billion dollars. I actually have an inventor tell me one time his patent was worth a billion dollars. And um, I felt bad. I, I laughed at him and I felt bad about it later. But, um, you know, it, it really is dependent upon who the parties are. You know, and it's different than a house where you have you know, we have a market and you have a lot more sales and transactions occurring. Here you're stepping into a marketplace that does not have that visibility on sales. Um, and it's much harder to gauge the valuation of a patent. And you can hire professionals to come up with all sorts of valuations. And depending on who you hire, you know, they'll come up with different numbers. Um, you know, I think it is going to be difficult on the valuation side because it does vary. They, you, it's amazing. You can come up, some people say, oh, it's the market is 50,000 per patent for that technology space. And, okay, where'd you come up with that from? Um, and, and you find out that it's just a, an average of various things, but a particular patent with particular claims set and prosecution history and all the things that go with it, um, depending on where it hits, you know, it, it is going to be interesting. I think some of the tools coming about, whether from companies like yourself or other companies, are starting to gain data uh, and they may be able to do a better job of providing evaluation that is more accurate. It's just very difficult right now. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I think we are quite early, but approaching a healthy first innings, we're actually seeing so many financial institutions, specifically in Asia, who are now loaning capital against the IP assets of a business and, and, build, and building out quite mature frameworks around valuation and building out quite sizable products, actually, within that marketplace. So it's getting there, but yeah, Patent valuation is another one where I've seen sparks fly. People get annoyed around the table and discuss that or get passionate. It is a, it's an ongoing journey. I, I still think we're, we're very much on. Yeah. And as you mentioned, data is the important part of that. The more data you have, the better fidelity on your valuation. We just need more data. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I think where we've been, well, serendipitously in the middle of that. So we can help participate in the community to build that out well but and scott and so kind of looking at now just the final part of our conversation looking at as a c-level exec within the ip world where do you see the ip department in the next three four years in terms of new paradigms new activities what are some of the big things you think potentially will change in the future in terms of the operating rhythm the execution rhythm of an ip department at a larger organization is it do you see much change in the next three, four years? Any any new exciting developments? Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I see anything new and exciting. Uh, I think we've already gone through the stages of new and exciting with the last round of U.S. changes in the law um, and some of the caseload that came out. Um, so I'm hoping things stay a little more, more solid in some respects. It's been very fluid the last few years. Um, I do see that, you know, the valuations are there in terms of trying to prove the, the, the component of, IP is important for the particular business. Um, I think from my side, I don't really see that many dramatic changes, to be honest with you. I'm hoping at least I don't see too many dramatic changes. I think I'm trying to just run it um, on a steady course right now where we are. Um, quality is a big issue, I think, across the board um, that, you know, it's, it is one where I think most folks are struggling because, once again, as I mentioned, your budget's fixed in some ways and you're, the pricing or the, the, the 
complexity of the patents has gone up. Um, so, you know, one is that old saying, you can have uh, quality, cost, and time. Which two do you want out of the three? I think that's what we're seeing in some respects is that it is a challenge to get all those components together on a regular basis and, and systematic approach. So I'm looking to kind of probably add some rigor around the tools and processes that I have to make sure I have the quality, the price, and the speed that I need to basically go through and, and handle the preparation side of things. Similar on prosecution, I'll be looking to make sure I, I continue to refine the skill sets and processes around it so that we're getting the best output we can for our limited budget. Well, Scott, it's been awesome connecting with you today. And the final part of our conversation is a bit of fun, a quick fire round. So top two books that you would highly recommend or you most gift? I'll be honest with you. I read all day long, uh, to be honest. I, I haven't read a book for pleasure in a, quite a long time. I really, at the top of my head, I can't think of one because I spend my day reading patents, which, you know, it, granted, they're, they're books in some respects, but uh, <laughs> I, and I can't tell you about them because they haven't been published yet. <laughs> okay. Okay. Alien life form, believer or non-believer? And why? <laughs> uh, I'd say yes. I, I believe that there's something out there. Um, I don't think it looks like me, uh, but yes, I think there's something out there. It's just, statistically, there's just too many things out there. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, Scott, it's been awesome having you on Innovation Capital. It's been, the exchange has been super fun, and uh, you take care. You too, sir. Take care of yourself. Bye. Thank you. And that is it for today's episode with Scott Asmus, everyone. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, hit that subscribe button. Share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would be truly impacted by today's episode. If you got through the entire episode, I want to say thank you so much. And for doing so, we want to help you. We want to do something for you here at PatSnap. If you want to spark an impactful discussion around innovation within your organization, then you can go ahead and download your copy of our free ebook, The Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint. In this ebook, we explore what connected innovation intelligence is and how the world's top disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper competitive world. To get your free copy today, all you have to do is visit patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that is P A T S N A P dot C O M forward slash blueprint patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. Can't wait to be back for another. Until next time, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.
And there you have it for today's interview with George Romanik, everyone. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I want to first of all thank George for taking time out of his schedule and sharing his amazing wisdom with us today. And also thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed it, you went through the whole episode, we want to give you something for doing so. If you're wanting to spark an impactful discussion around innovation within your organization, then we have just the thing for you. You can download your copy of our free ebook, The Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint. In this report, we explore what connected innovation intelligence is and how the world's top disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper competitive world. And to download this free copy of this amazing ebook, all you have to do is go to patsnap.com forward slash blueprint to get your copy today. Again, that is patsnap.com forward slash blueprint. If you enjoyed today's episode, also hit that subscribe button, leave a rating and review. If you want to see a guest on here or have a guest recommendation, feel free to write in. We'd be happy to hear it. We will be back with another episode soon. Until then, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious.